Hey everybody, welcome back to Three Guys One Couch, episode 11, second episode of the 2020 NYFBL season. I'm Justin Chernow, owner of the Colorado Crush, and today I'm joined on the couch by only one other guy, two guys on the couch today. Please introduce yourself. This is uh, Eric, owner of uh, Jose Tres Leches, a fantastically named uh, group in the uh, New York Fantasy Baseball League. Self-proclaimed fantastically named. Can I ask what the other names in contention were this year? You know, I, I always go, uh, I always go sort of randomly. So I see, you know, what's what's around and and what's available, what makes sense. But when I saw I had three Jose's, it's just kind of, it's kind of locked in. Um, I really didn't uh, really didn't mess around with too much other stuff this year, so um, I was kind of stuck with uh, realizing I had three Jose's. So that's that's where I went. And well, I did hear that someone threw out that your name should have been Jose, 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 Jose. Um, but you you yourself are a big fan of Tres Leches cake. I, I am a really big fan of Tres Leches cake. I had excellent Tres Leches cake when I was in uh, Puerto Rico, and so that's what got me really excited about it. And so when I saw I had three Jose's, Jose Tres Leches made sense, and uh, it just went from there, so I won't say it's my favorite name of all time. Um, suck my Ditka, by far. Uh, great, great name, but uh, Jose Tres Leches is uh, not bad and uh, hardly copied, so excited about that. So it's funny, I was actually looking at my team, um, and I have Matt Chapman and May Machado, and I said, hmm, if Eric was owning this team, he would name it Cha-Cha-Cha, because I have Chapman yeah. and Machado. That's good. I like that. Yes. That's, uh, that's clever. Because it's a, it's a dumb name. <laughs> well, I, 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 enjoy my, uh, I enjoy my dumb names. So. so we are about just shy of one week into the league right now, and obviously it's very early to tell, but early indications are that your team is performing pretty well. I believe that you are currently either first or second overall in terms of points for during the first scoring period. Yeah, I'm, I'm second overall right now, and I think it is important you know, as we talk about current events, because things are, are changing so much this season to say that this is Tuesday night. Um, so because who knows by the time when this gets released, where we're going to be in terms of overall, both the league and, and MLB itself. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm feeling so far really good about my team, and it's really not so much the pitching. You know, normally we, we see obviously pitchers in a points league um, dominate, and so far it's really been my hitters. Nelson Cruz went crazy. Um, Jose Ramirez also had a silently great day um, one day this past week. Rizzo's hit, I believe, three home runs at this point, so um, it's really been my hitters that have driven me through, haven't gotten you know great pitching performances overall, but also haven't had a chance to have too many. But um, so I think, I think the other thing is thinking about it, you know, when you think about the whole season, you know, I have a, a pretty low tolerance, and I, I've told my team this, you know, a low tolerance for bad performance this year. Um, the way that the season is faced out, every three-game series is like a week of normal time. And so that this double-time way of playing means that I don't have a lot of patience when people don't perform. And the team's really responded to that and picked up right away. What would you say your tolerance is during a normal year for bad performance? Are you more reactive, or do you tend to stick with your guys? I, I think it depends... You know what I expected from them at the beginning of the year, right? So if it's someone who I think maybe they historically start cold, and you know within a couple of months they get hot, I'll I'll hang out. I'm not I'm not much for trades. Um, 
So I don't I don't like trading down on someone. So if there's someone who I felt really strongly about, I'll I'll almost always try to stick around and hope that they get their performance back to where I expected it to be. Um, I don't think you have the luxury of that this year. I think things are going to move so so quickly that you need to figure out if you're a contender or a player or not and make moves appropriately and manage appropriately um, to make sure that you're you're successful. So normally I have a if they're a good player, I have a pretty high tolerance. But if there's somebody I just picked up, I I and they have a couple of bad performances, I have no issue with a revolving door at that uh, at that point. But you know it, it, it cost me a points last year too because I dropped some guys who ended up uh, having some good finishes to the season. So let's talk about that. Being that this year is shorter, and you're saying that you have a uh, a tighter policy in terms of how long you're willing to roster someone who's underperforming, how does someone like you, who tends to hold his wallet, let's say being kindly close to the vest in terms of fab, uh, navigate that situation? You now have a thousand dollars to spend throughout the course of the year. Are you still dropping ones and twos, little pennies here and there? trying to suck up all the fab for the end, or are you more willing to spend a little more, maybe, I don't dare we say, 4 or $5 on a given player? So my my hope going into these first couple of fab rounds was that people didn't notice the increased budget, and that people, I could catch with a couple of $1 and $2 bids, people who I normally would not spend $1 or $2 on just to kind of get ahead in the priority order. So that was my original hope was to sneak in with a couple in this first these first rounds obviously as time goes on everybody realizes we have a thousand um yes i'm going to be more willing to spend it and more free with it and in in my head i'm still relating obviously to one dollar is ten dollars sort of thing so that's that's where you know i'm still thinking about it but um i'm sure i'm going to have money left because i want to have money left at the end I, I want to go into the championship week knowing that i can get who i want to be on my team um, and not have to really be competing for it. So, if there's somebody out there, I'll I'll grab him. You know, I, I grabbed Juan Soto when he when he came up, and I, I spent a bunch of money on him, and that ended up being a great pickup two years ago. Um, but I'm not someone who, for a revolving spot that I'm not sure what I'm really getting, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of money on him. Um, and I'm I'm still managed to be pretty successful with that. But now this year, because one game is equal to about 2.7 games in a normal season, is $1 really equal to uh, $10 this year? Or is it really $1 now equal to $27 if you prorate how much it costs per week throughout the season in order to pick people up? I mean, if you don't make the playoffs, and as we had calculated the playoffs or the finals, which is going to be weeks 8 and 9 this year, uh, you need to have a certain number of wins, which correlates to an 11-win season during a normal 18-week season. So I'm thinking there's really only going to be three, maybe max four teams that reach that threshold. It, out of 12, if you're not one of those teams, what are you saving your money for? Well, then at, at that point, you're right. Then if you don't if you don't make it, then it's not, uh, it's not worth much of anything. But... Um, you know, I think some of these guys are still such crapshoots, and yeah, they're going to have one good performance, but you've missed it already because it's already gone. And so you have to look at who they are as a player and what they've done in the past and try to project if you think they're going to be super successful going forward. And then you're right, I'm going to have no problem spending uh, a bunch of money on, on some folks in order to kind of speed that up and make sure I get who I want. But uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't made too many drastic changes so far. We're a week in. 
um, because I, I just don't have a good sense of who's making and who's not. Now I think I do, um, so I might be a big mover tomorrow come uh, come pickup time. But um, I've been still hesitant very much so far. So I see you've spent quite a bit on money specifically on pitching to uh, to get back and fill in some of the holes that you've had. Well, yeah, I, I think it's important, especially early in the season, as we're being reactive to players who may have made off-season adjust- adjustments or adjustments during summer camp or spring training, whereas I think that the value of the dollar tends to decrease as the season goes on, especially this season when minor league call-ups aren't really going to be a thing. Uh, I don't know if you're going to get a situation where a Juan Soto gets called up because the 60-man rosters are set at this point. Um, there may be some service time manipulation, but I think that one week into the season already, I think that we're at that point where service time manipulation is already over. So I don't know how many players are going to appear out of the nebulous that are going to be worthwhile to be rostered. So I want to get on the early trends and make sure that I'm picking up the players who are going to provide me some value in the next seven to nine weeks. I mean, this is essentially a very short-term pickup, no matter who you're picking up. Where It's already like we're in week 11 in the regular season. Yeah, and you know, I think the way that that happens is through um, COVID injuries, where a bunch of people have to be out, and we've seen that today with the Marlins and on a super extreme level. Um, but it could be on a much smaller level where you have three or so players that need to go out and need to go on the IL, and then they have to get backfilled, and those that's how some of those guys might get called up. Um, so that would be, I think, the door to playing time for some of those guys this year potentially. Do you want any of those guys, though? I mean, if they didn't make the Marlins the first time around, are you really going to pick up their ninth-best starting pitcher who couldn't beat out Jose Urania for a starting rotation slot? I mean, like you said, yeah, you don't want, you know, I know Melky Cabrera at one point was hanging out there on the, you know, on the Mets. Uh, not not someone I'm particularly interested in. Um, I actually um, drafted a player in my minor league spot this year, you did. Um, outfielder, what was his name again? He was good last year. He he was your best friend last year. Yes, uh, Aristides Aquino. Is that yes, him? yes, that's yes. Correct. Um, but unfortunately for him, he got called up uh, almost immediately after I drafted him. Why so, unfortunately for him? Isn't that unfortunate for you? Well, it, it, it is, but it's unfortunate for him because he can't stay on the championship team anymore. So he had to go because uh, he hadn't proven himself yet this year, and so I had to unfortunately drop him um but no i mean like you said there's guys that they're also holding back because they're, they're service time questions and there's questions about if they're ready um and so that's that's some of the people i'm going to be looking at because i do have an open minor league spot right now trying to figure out who i want to uh who i want to have in that spot going forward as we continue the year now you were a big proponent of unlimited injured list slots i, I could see i envision a scenario where your team is about 50 men on the roster right now and 21 of those slots are filled with just injured players. Well, I, I do, you know, I do enjoy using all the tools at our disposal. Let's uh, let's say to ensure I have the best team. Um, I, I will say, looking back on it, it that unlimited spots was was a, a mistake. I think that just based on the way that Fantrax treats the IL, um, I think that that's that probably wasn't a good decision but i think five is perfectly 
appropriate. And I just really don't want to get to a situation where someone has to make a difficult decision if they have six players who are a mix of COVID and actually injured that have could have a chance to come back where they're going to have to eat up a bench slot or or drop somebody because they can't fit that person on their team. Well, um, I'm getting uh, scarily close to that scenario with yeah. Verlander being out for an extended period. Moustakis has COVID, and I have three Marlins pitchers who I have no idea if they're one of the 15 who have tested positive for COVID. I do wish they would release that already and put them on the injured list so I can decide what to do with my roster. But right now I'm kind of just in a holding period and seeing what the Marlins do and who's actually sick until I'm able to make further decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... And there's there's no guarantee, you know, even from the start of this whole thing that it was going to get released. You know, it depends on how they want to treat it and... Uh, well, they have to get put, put on the injured list. Right. Well, if even they, if it's if for undisclosed, you have to be put on the injured list. Right, that's if they truly get there, but they're not playing for the next week, the Marlins. So they don't have to do anything at all. You know, they can they can wait and see how these things all turn out, and then, you know, a couple days from now, they can decide to put people on it um, as they start to come back and hopefully rejoin the league and and play again. Um, so they don't they don't necessarily have to make a decision this moment either. I know for for your standpoint and for my standpoint is probably better. I do have a Marlins uh, closer and uh, and a, a Marlins. Center fielder. Uh, hitter. What? Center fielder, Jonathan VR. No, center fielder. Marlins second baseman shortstop who sometimes plays center field and can't, can't catch a fly ball. Um, but, yeah, I, I would uh, I would appreciate that as well. And, you know, it's not even just the Marlins. All the other teams that stopped, you know, whether it be the Phillies or the Yankees over the last couple of days and how that's going to really impact matchups for us going forward if we can see – Something. If this is how MLB is going to treat situations like this, it's going to disrupt our weekly matchups because you could just be on the unlucky side where now all of a sudden a bunch of players that you have aren't even playing anymore, and uh, the rest of the league continues on. And you know, in this year where you're playing against everybody every week, everyone else is getting ahead of you. So it's not even like you can get lucky and have your opponent have a bunch of players that aren't playing. Everybody else is playing. Everybody else is gaining points, and you're sitting stagnant with most of your players. Sure, but luck inherently is random, um, especially when it comes to COVID. So all things being equal, it's fair. Everyone has the same exact chance to draft COVID players. Everyone had the same exact chance to have their players contract COVID. Luck itself is random when you're talking about something like a pandemic or an illness. Now, when you're talking about injury... There is research that shows that prior injury is a precursor to future injuries. So there may not be always luck with an injury, but you take a look at someone like Lewis, who last year drafted nine pitchers, and I think for the most part, eight or nine of those pitchers stayed on his team the entire season. He They, they stayed perfectly healthy, and yeah, there's obviously some luck to that, but when you draft someone like Zach Greinke, who pitches 200 innings every single season and doesn't really have an injury history... Uh, that's something that you're drafting at that point. But when we're talking about pandemic, you know, anyone can be walking down the street and, and get COVID. It's, uh, so I, I just don't think it's a reason to complain if you do have players who get COVID. I mean, look, Juan Soto got COVID. That was extremely unfortunate for Nick. Um, I know I have a couple of players on my team who are probably about to get it, but not something to necessarily complain about. Let's just roll with the punches and frankly... I don't even know if we're going to finish the season anyway. So this is all for fun. Right. 
and I, I yeah, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not saying it's not fair. It is, it is fair, um, and particularly on the injury side. You know, I had a, um, a pretty high tolerance this year in terms of drafting for the injury standpoint because I really thought, you know, this 60-game run, this is a sprint this year. And some of the guys that we've seen who break down, who can't make it for 162, who always need that rest or who barely are on the field, uh, Cespedes, um, you know, I have a higher tolerance for those guys this year because we're going to run and we're going to do this thing and it's going to it's gonna be run out. Um, and so that's why I was really interested in a guy like Nelson Cruz this year because, first of all, he, he is a – he is a star, um, and with the, some of the injuries and things he suffered in the past, I'm I'm hoping that he's going to be healthy for this run and be able to to work through it. Yeah, I mean, look, he he had some wrist issues last year, but it wasn't anything that was con- to be concerned about, right? It wasn't like he was coming off of Tommy John. Um, but n- now that you brought up your draft, let's go through your draft a little bit. So uh, I, I can't tell who you nominated, but I will say that you did spend. Uh, money to get the fifth player overall that was nominated this year during the draft. So the draft went Corey Seager, Garrett Cole, Vlad Guerrero, Mike Trout, and then fifth was Jose Ramirez, who went to the Jose Tres Leches. He's one of the Tres Jose's uh, for $44. So that's your, I, I think, your most expensive player. So talk to us a little bit about your big splash who joins the Jose Tres Leches for the second year in a row. Yeah, you know, well, Interested in welcoming uh, Jose back? I, I I don't know why I bid as high as I did on him. So I had a you know I had a strategy kind of going in. I had a budget set for what I wanted to spend on positions, and I, I did have in my budget um, a forty dollar uh, hitter to spend that on. And I guess when I saw him in that in that range and thought that he would be appropriate for me, and I enjoyed having him on the team last year, even though he was overall a disappointment. Hope that he could pick things up this year, and so far um, he's done. Uh, he's done fairly well. So excited about welcoming him back. I actually don't remember if I bid on him all throughout, or if I just kind of came in at the end and said, "Hey, that's where he is. I think that's a good value." Um, and I, I did want to try to get someone early on in the draft because my thought was that as things sort of settled out and what the value was worth for everybody, that some of, there could be some upfront bargains that could have gone for later in the draft and. That thinking was probably backwards because there was a lot of high-value players that went in the beginning. But my thought that there was going to be some steals as we tried to figure out what the value of everybody was. But uh, we had some aggressive bidders. So you mentioned you had a $40 player. How do you go around deciding who that player is going to be? Does it matter to you who it is? Because obviously someone like uh, Christian Yelich, let's say for all intents and purposes, coming into the year, most people had ranked higher on their list. So I'm assuming, for your point of view, having a forty dollar uh, Christian Yelich is probably better than a forty dollar Jose Ramirez. So how do you balance between player value and what you allotted for them? Yeah, I mean Yelich is Yelich is good. I mean one of the things that you'll notice about my team is um, I did not spend a whole bunch of money on outfielders. So you know outfielder being a very deep position. Yeah, Yelich is good, but I really wanted someone who was going to be a part of my part of my infield. Um, really, kind of solidify that. And so I, I spent a bunch of money on infielders and really not so much on outfielders because outfield is so deep. Um, so Yelich would have been perfectly fine, and but I, I really didn't splurge for any any really expensive outfielder this year because I was focusing a lot more on getting the infield filled out. 
Understood. So how, I guess, looking at other values in that range, so we had Jose Ramirez go for 44, we had Bregman go for 45, we had Bellinger go for 46. Those are all people who are available throughout the infield. How do you feel about uh, Jose Ramirez compared to some of those other values that went, who may or may not play the same position, but are infield, who's what, who's what you were looking for? Yeah. Um... I feel I feel fine. I think he's, uh, you know, if he needs to bounce back a little bit, certainly compared to where he was last year. But I feel like he's right in the range of a lot of those guys. Um, you know, he'll, he'll hopefully continue to pick up the stolen bases, which are worth two points, and they're a very nice add-on um, to continue his uh, his value. And uh, I feel I feel good about it. You know, him be him starting off and him being a really good cornerstone. I think that was uh, that was a good start. But you know, the the where you're going to find the, the biggest part and where I feel like I was the most successful in the draft was, of course, in the, the middle part. That's where I felt like I really kind of, my strategy and everything I had done really came alive was for sure in the middle and not so much on the front end. So where in the middle, I guess, are you speaking about? So I guess like let me I maybe talk a little bit about the, the front end and my, what my strategy was. So I, I nominated players... Um, in the beginning, almost entirely that I was not interested in. Um, wanted to get them out there, wanted to get them on the board to encourage other people to spend their money. And specifically, I targeted uh, I targeted Mets, knowing that we have a, a Mets-centric group as well as the Yankees-centric group. But um, I did I nominated Pete Alonso in the very first round. Um, I also put up Edwin Diaz at one point, which you you jumped on. I think I also nominated uh, Conforto at one point. Um, so I, I really wanted to target Mets to encourage and allow other people to spend their money, which actually basically turned into Mike throwing as much money as, uh, as he could at them. That's what that uh, sort of turned into, um, which I was, I was surprised that Wells wasn't, you know, involved with this more than he was in terms of his, him jumping in and, and getting some uh, getting some value there as well. But there was a point, I think, um, maybe it was two-thirds of the way through the, through the night, but not two-thirds of the way through the draft because of what happened at the end that I'll get to my displeasure as to how the end was handled, um, where I think it was Jeff nominated someone for for $5, and no one bid, and he got him. And so that was the turning point for me, like, okay, I have to stop nominating people that I don't want and start nominating people that I do because everybody's sort of low on money at this point, and then it's, it's, time, to, it's time to really spend it out. And so... There was a there was a point there where it definitely switched over to me where I, I really hadn't spent a bunch on pitching up front. I had maybe two or so um, pitchers that I had spent thirty dollars on, and then Charlie Morton came up, who I was extremely interested in. And there was a you know Fantrax for whatever reason had him rated a lot lower than than I did on on my sheet, and I was expecting to kind of sneak in, and it seemed like almost everybody was in on Morton. Um, and so that was a big disappointment for me because I was really hoping to snag him, and I forget what Lewis paid for him, but it wasn't something that I was willing to to cross. And obviously, he had a bad start this first start, and so so far it looks like a pretty good decision, but we'll see. Um, but then after that, I knew, you know, I, I needed seven pitchers, and so it was time to really I had to switch my strategy around and devote much more of my dollars towards pitching than I was originally planning to just because we have so many spots to fill up and I, I did enjoy the draft a lot I think we all agree it was the most intense we've ever done um, but I did I did enjoy the structure of it and how it worked out 
So I think that that's the interesting thing about auction drafts and how my mentality at least switched between auction and snake and that in a snake draft, you really do want to be getting the bottom of the tiers um, because that's the last player that's available in a certain tier. So if you're tiering by positions, you really want to get the bottom of the tier to get that last good player. In an auction draft, you really want to get the top of the tier because as soon as everyone starts to see the tier disappearing, everyone's going to be waiting for that last player, those last two players, and throwing as much money as they have on those players. And I really think that's what happened with starting pitching at a couple of different points in the draft. And one that you pointed out being Charlie Morton, I think everyone looked at the pitchers that were available and saw a tier after Morton and Kershaw. I think they were the last two players who were on the board, and they were actually nominated 102nd and 104th. They ended up going for 30 and $35, respectively. Now, I think that the uh, the second time where I saw a tier end was at James Paxton, uh, who obviously also had a tough start. So all three of those players actually ended up not really at this point during the season. Well, one of them's on the IL. I think one of them, Paxton, probably about to be on the IL. And then Morton is still TBD in terms of if he can turn around. But uh, we saw all those players, I think, get bid up because they were the end of the tiers in the auction draft. So I think my mentality at least changed uh, where I wasn't trying to wait to get that last player in the tier because I had a feeling that everyone would be trying to bid them up. Yeah, it's a good point. I actually think I was one that nominated Kershaw because he wasn't someone that I was interested in this year because obviously he had the name recognition. But you look at the strikeout totals and they're not there. And so that was my biggest concern with him was, yeah, he's, you know, do people on name recognition alone, I was not going to be interested in him because I knew what he was going to potentially go for, which was quite a bit of money. And the lower strikeouts meant I wasn't interested in him. So I believe I actually nominated Kershaw in that spot as well. So I actually, I do want to bring up something that you mentioned before, and I am trying to pull up stats as I do it, because you said that you weren't interested in Charlie Morton at his price range of $30. Um, but you also did draft Trevor Bauer for, I'm taking a look here. No, it's right about, it's right about there. It 33, was 30 points for, and yep. Nola for 32. But when I look at, and I'm trying to pull it up, I think total points from last year, I think Morton outscored both of those pitchers by a pretty decent margin. He was even on your team. So why were you willing to go to 32 and 33 for Nola and Bauer, but not to 30 for Morton? Was it just circumstance of you already had those two players and Morton actually probably would have, you would have rather had Morton for 30 than one of those players for 32 or 33? So Nola, I thought was, and I, I've, I've thought pretty highly about Nola, um, which I did hear from the last podcast that no one seemed to really think the value that I put in him. I think he has the potential and he could be a top 10 guy. Um, so I was really looking for this year for him to really turn things around. And I, I paid for it like he would be. Plus, he's a Philly, which means I get to watch him being in the in the local area. So there's some interest there for me as well is that I get to watch him start. So that, that's what made me interested in him. I also like Bauer quite a bit. I mean, the, the guy himself is a jerk, but... Um, like what he's been able to do on the field and this whole pitching every couple of days thing interested me because I think there is value this year in whatever because we don't know how starters are going to really go and how they're going to be. There is value in trying to get as many innings as possible from your guys. And so whatever Bauer was going to do this year, I think that was interesting to me in that he was willing to be that aggressive in terms of stepping up and pitching every four days or so. So um, 
Whoever they have Morton over both of those guys, um, I think they they fit. He fits into me with Bauer, but I think Nola is uh, is superior to them. So I was pretty happy at the price I got Nola at, um, and I didn't have it when since I spent thirty bucks on those guys, I did not have the budget on my sheet for another thirty dollar pitcher. Um, I think I had a, enough for a twenty dollar pitcher, which I believe is pretty close to what I got what I got Barrios for. I might have overpaid for him. A little bit and had to make some adjustments, but I didn't have it in the budget for another $30 guy. Um, so I had to make some adjustments there going forward. So just wrapping up the conversation about last year. So Morton was the eighth best pitcher in terms of total points at 16.09 points per start. You have Nola at 18th best at 13.12. And then you had Bauer at 24th best at 12.26. So just putting relative values on those players based off last year. Um, but I do know that you tend to have your finger on the pulse of when players tend to have their outlier year in a good way. And uh, then you tend to walk away after that's done. Except for his Porcello, who I, I drafted again, and uh, he still stunk. So he's the one I haven't given up except this year, which looks like a good call. I was actually curious as to who had him, and I went to look, and turns out he was on the wire. Yeah, he was dropped. Nick Morano yeah. drafted him, but Nick Morano also drafted 19 starting pitchers, so he had to drop a bunch of them. Um, yeah, I mean, the one the one that stands out to me was uh, Manny Machado, who you drafted two years ago. He had his breakout year for you, uh, and I believe you had him again last year. You drafted him in the second round, and uh, second or third round, and he did not provide the value which you drafted him. No, and last year... Um I believe I was 11th, so I got him on the turn um, because at that point there were really no good pitchers at that point. So I, I went uh, Jose Ramirez and then and then took Machado on the on the turn in that second round. So, um, but yeah, I mean, so so I felt you know at one point halfway through maybe the actual time of the draft. I had quite a bit of money. I was actually second in terms of total dollars that I had. Um, obviously, Wells was first. He hadn't he hadn't spent a whole bunch of the whole draft, um, and that meant that I knew I could bully my way into some of these pitchers, which was what I was really interested in doing and trying to find some good value here to really get the back end of my bullpen together, um, or actually the majority of my bullpen together. So it, it was it was fun to sort of bully my way into these conversations and be able to to really strike hard for the people who I wanted in my in my bullpen. So talk a little bit about your bullpen. You ended up with, if I have this correctly on my sheet, it's Liam Hendricks, Kirby Yates, uh, Araldus Chapman. Is that correct? Yeah. So so maybe maybe bullpen was the. Uh, was the wrong term because I, I was overall shocked at how low relief pitchers went. And I think I was that too. was definitely a function of the way the draft turned out in that by the time everybody sort of turned their head to relief pitchers, they, um, they the money wasn't there. I also tend to think everyone's scared. Uh, it's a league that has historically not put much of a premium on relief pitching when we snake draft. But, uh, yeah, in terms of value over replacement, I was shocked at how low some of those what I would call top-tier relief pitchers were going for. And I, I highlighted this in the last podcast where Taylor Rogers for $2 compared to some of the guys who were going for $1, I think that's incredible value. Yeah, I mean, so specifically as far as my relief pitching goes, Chapman, Hendricks, and Yates 
are three of the top five guys to me heading into this season in terms of relief pitching. So I am incredibly happy to have that being my relief pitching um, this year, and I'm shocked that 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 I was able to to get to get everybody. Yeah, I, I was really referring to actually the rest of my starters that I was able to to fill up with and really choose who made sense and guys like Rich Hill and Carlos Martinez, who people were interested in, um, you know, was able to, to spend the money to, to get them Ross script. And I think also there was some interest from a couple people. Um, and so I was able to really have the hammer to uh, get who I wanted. So were you targeting those guys or were you just, did you want them because other people wanted them at the same time? Because I did notice that part of your strategy was, to not bid on anyone until they've already pretty much been bid up to their max and you come in with one second left and place your bid if you feel like they're, they're still worth the value. Well, I just don't know. Yes, there's, there's an element of that. I don't, I don't know why I would drive the price up necessarily. I'm either interested or not, and so I can wait to see what the price ends up being, and then, yes, I can add myself on for a dollar and... Um, if that's the price it's going to be settled at between the folks that were bidding, I could then sneak in and add myself on top of that and see if the person was willing to go. And sometimes they were, and sometimes they weren't. Uh, but no, those were people who I had found that I was interested in and potentially getting this year. Um, now, they weren't you know, top 20 guys, but they were people who I think had some upside. And that's sort of what you're looking for at that point, is, is what kind of upside can you get? And I know... Lewis was looking for quite a bit of upside as well to, to finish up his um, his rest of his rotation. Yeah, so uh, you said you had the most money, or, or at least second most compared to Wells. Was that part of your strategy too, was to have the hammer at the end? So the, the part that I didn't expect was that it wasn't the end, right? I mean, that was the part that I, I really didn't see coming was the poor money management from the other owners in us having this last third of the draft where everybody just sits and takes people for a dollar. Um, I did not see that coming. I thought people were going to be way more um, way more planned in their spending of money and making sure that they had enough so that we didn't necessarily end up in that spot. If we would do this again, actually, my recommendation would be that, you know, and I don't, this is not going to be possible in the system, but if you run out of money, your draft is over and you need to pick up the remainder of your players using fab dollars once we get into the actual league. If it didn't stop everybody from spending the money, I think there were the people there were people who would have gone broke. But but it controlled having everybody just have dollars at the end um, to make sure you're able to fill your roster up. But I think there should absolutely be a, a penalty for that bad money management from the majority of the league. Well, the penalty is that you can throw out a player and anyone can bid two dollars, then you're out of the running for them. Isn't that penalty enough where I think it was Nick and Daniel, Nick Miller and Daniel, both ended up with $1 uh, per player, decent amount to- from the end of the draft, and they would throw out a player, and they couldn't get the player they wanted. Uh, they also couldn't bid on players that were being thrown out. So they were really at everyone else's mercy until everyone else got down to $1. So isn't that punishment enough? It is It is a punishment, but of course I, I think it should be should be more punishment. Um, but no, I'm, I'm fine with the way it ended, but I, I didn't expect that to be the way that it ended. I did not see 
you know, and I don't, I don't know if you can see if it was a third of the draft being dollar bids or what that looked like, um, how many picks were truly dollar ads at the end there. But I, I really didn't see that coming. So, um, yeah, I mean, my strategy going in was throw players I didn't necessarily want in the beginning specifically Mets, try to grab some players off the top because I thought there would be some value there, keep keep myself, keep the roster moving and, and getting filled in. And then there was a panic that kind of set in when I realized I didn't really have enough pitching, and then I had to go super aggressive on pitching, and then I got I got done because I was I was finished at that point, so I um, was able to kind of finish up the roster and and just kind of hang out for a while. So let's talk a little bit about your your favorite and least favorite picks of your own. Uh, have you taken a look at reviewing your draft, and do you have a good feel of who you think you were most proud of, and which ones you would want to have a redo on? So I would say also take all the information that you know today uh, and throw it away in terms of rewind yourself back one week towards the end of the draft. Uh, obviously, there are complications with Eduardo Rodriguez's heart, which we uh, now know that were difficult to predict at the time and just shows how dangerous this whole COVID situation actually is. Um, but if you could put yourself in the mindset of directly after the draft, how you were feeling. And we, of course, wish Eduardo a full recovery and hope that he sees the field uh, soon. But um, not too soon, next year. I think that's a, fi- that's a fine wasted $9 for the Jose Tres Leches. So I, I think my, um, and I know I talked about, you know, devaluing outfielders before, um, but one of my favorite picks that I'll go with was uh, getting Kyle Schrober for 11 bucks. I think that's a, a good value for someone who, in a DH-filled NL this year, will have a spot all the time. And obviously the value with Schwarber back when he started enjoying the league was that he had catcher eligibility. I mean, that was something that was extremely enticing as someone who, to be honest, didn't play catcher um, or, or didn't play catcher well. But to have catching eligibility and put him in that, that spot was something that was exciting. Um, as he's gone along and become a full outfielder, he's become a little less entertaining, but I thought with the DH this year, they would find a spot for him in pretty much every lineup, and so I thought 11 bucks was extremely fair for Schwarber this year and what I could get from him, and I think he's, he's already had one home run this year, so pretty off to a pretty decent start. I mean, I remember him and Pablo Sandoval also had catcher eligibility, but I don't think either of them could actually fit into catcher equipment at this point in their careers based on uh, some of the weight that they've put on. Yes, catcher is uh, catcher is quite the wasteland. So anyone who has any sort of relevance for catching eligibility is automatically uh, interesting. Now that we're talking about catchers, and we'll get back to your favorite and least favorite picks, uh, can we talk about the little catcher war you had with Mike Galembo? Sure. So uh, yeah. I, I wasn't too privy of what was going on here. All I know is that there was a lot of complaining uh, from one side about someone else stealing all their catchers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Mike just basically wanted to to draft the Mets. I mean, he he really wanted to turn on his television and 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 watch his entire team play in Flushing. That seemed to be his his goal this year um, was to, to literally go with every single Met possible. Um, I don't know where or how Ramos got thrown out. I'm not exactly sure who who nominated him. It actually might have been me, um, but there were only one or two catchers that had gone off the board at that point. And I thought Ramos was poised for a potential bounce-back year. And so he was someone who I thought within the top, let's say, 
seven or eight catchers would be someone who I was interested in. And I didn't have a catcher yet, and so I was going to, I was interested in Ramos really as my backup catcher with a lot of potential. Um, so I, I've always drafted two catchers, and he was someone who I had targeted from a backup standpoint that I think he could um, go back to his Washington National days, and I think he's underperforming with the Mets so far. So if he could stop hitting ground balls, that would be fantastic and start really uh, doing something. That would be, that'd be good. So, yeah, my guy went back and forth quite a bit on, on Ramos. Um, and then there was another catcher at one point, I forget, where we also went back and forth too. I think it was probably Will Smith. It might have been. Um, so Will Smith, you know, so far has been someone I've been a little disappointed in specifically how the Dodgers have handled him because he's really not, he's not there. He's not starting as much as he should. He, he didn't start opening day, which was very disappointing. Um, and so they've been really balancing him and he had a, a pinch hit home run, which of course they didn't have him in for because you can't expect something like that. Um, but I, I think Will Smith had the potential to be a be a really great guy. Um, but I was I was actu- actually interested very much in the catcher on the uh, Royals, who I had uh, who I've had before. What's his, what's his name again? Salvador Perez. Salvador Perez, who I think is probably going to be better than both of them. I, I like Salvador Perez quite a bit, specifically because on days that at least before he got hurt, he has an injury history. Um, on days that he didn't catch, they would attend. They would um, occasionally DH him as well, and so that you know, anytime a catcher is on the field, that to me is extremely valuable from the catching spot because we know that these guys are have off days and they're on and off and switching and all that kind of stuff, and so it's very very difficult to, to do. And so he was someone who would catch and he would also DH sometimes, and so that was a good benefit of having him. So I, I actually was more interested of in him than Will Smith, but the value at catcher, I mean. There was no dollars being spent, so I just I just went for it and just took Will Smith. Yeah, uh, I also think Salvador Perez is also a decent, uh, fairly good value for Hogbro, who ended up getting him. Uh, and I do want to take the time to shout out, because we don't often get to say it, but uh, first place, Mike Galembo, as of uh, Tuesday night as well. Yeah, excellent, excellent job. He's had a couple of uh, great, great performances so far, and... Um where he actually had pulled away quite a bit in the beginning of the week, and everybody sort of caught up to him as the week's gone on. So um, we're coming. Yeah. Let's catch it up. Let's, uh, let's slide over to some players who you think you may have uh, overspent on a bit. Anyone who you feel like you would uh, regret your bid or take back some of the dollars that you spent? I mean, I know I needed another, I needed another pitcher who had the potential to really be great. Twenty bucks on Barrios. We'll see how it how it pans out. He never got a great first start, um, but I'm a little worried. That's that's a lot of money to spend, and I, I needed a third guy. So I'm hoping he can really step it up going forward. And obviously, like what the Twins are doing this year, so I hope there's some uh, there's some wins there. But I don't know if the twenty bucks is really going to be a great spend for him. I don't know if this is correct. I'm actually going to double check in the draft recap. This was, uh, was this your last pick here, Tommy LaStella for $8? Yeah, that was, um, that was a money drop, I believe, so we can ignore no. that. That was just me spending the rest of the money. Okay, understood. Um, well, you actually then took Tommy LaStella. Well, I had no second baseman. <laughs> After Moustakas yeah, so tested positive for COVID. Actually, 
I'm going to redact that from the statement. He actually never tested positive. He was feeling sick, and he's tested negative, but he can't come back until like Thursday or Friday. So hopefully he's back soon, get better, Moose. But yes, after I looked at my draft and looked at the bench slots, I realized I didn't have a second baseman. So I went to pick up Asdrubel Cabrera, which I did, but don't feel confident in starting him every day. So uh, second base is kind of a wasteland unless you want shed long on your team, which I didn't particularly want. So I was actually fairly excited that Listella was out there after you dropped him. Yeah, I, I had to make a decision between Listella and Ryan McMahon um, on the on the Rockies, and I only really had the ability to keep one of them, and so I went with McMahon just based on what I could see in terms of potential. And uh, so far, he hasn't done all that great, so he's definitely a candidate for a switch up here. Well, uh, we'll also keep everyone on Miggy watch throughout the year because I know that you uh, are a big fan of Miguel Cabrera, the thirty uh, about to be thirty eight year old first baseman slash DH on the Detroit Tigers, who you think in a shortened season where he doesn't have to worry about injury, he can flourish. Uh, currently a 143 batting average. So we'll keep everyone on Miggy watch throughout the year. And I, I also got him for three bucks. So, you know, I think either, and he's, he's, he's starting for me in my corner infield spot. You know, he's, he's, he's going to be there. Um, hopefully he'll, he'll pick it up and going forward already has a, already has a home run this year. I want to point out. So, um, expect him to, still be doing good things, and yes, eventually he won't be, but uh, so far I, I expect a good year from him. Well, Phil Gosselin has two home runs if you're looking to pick someone up on waivers who hits a lot of home runs. There you go. That's, uh, uh, that's good to know. During the draft, I know that we also got into some bidding wars for some pitchers that ended up on my team, um, so let's talk about that a bit. I know particularly there was a, a bidding war for Dylan Bundy, there was a bidding war for Tanaka, and there was a bidding war for Julio Urias. Uh, who I ended up getting them all around ten to thirteen dollars. So, were you just attempting to bid me up at that point, or did you have any interest of getting those players on your team? So I knew that you know, well, I, I was able to sort of figure out that we were in somewhat similar spots, and that you had made some pretty aggressive moves for pitchers. Obviously, you you've shared in the last podcast that you know you were very much needed Verlander in order to be successful. Um, and so I did get the sense that we were going to both be competing for a lot of these pitchers at the end. Um, so there was definitely an element of me trying to get you to spend your money to get you out of the way. There was there was absolutely me, me driving the price up for some of that. It would surprise me if I bid on Tanaka. I'm not sure if I did because he's really n- not someone that I love. I might have bid on him. Um, Urias was someone I was interested in. So I would... You know that was that was legitimate. That I was interested in him, and I think we went back and forth on that for quite a bit until I gave up. Um, who was the other guy you named? Dylan Bundy. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't remember much on him. I don't remember if I bid on him or not, but um, I might have bid on Tanaka just to kind of drive the price up a little bit on him. Um, but Urias was someone who I was interested in. All right. Anything else that you want to point out? Oh, was there anyone that you uh, missed out on? Anyone that you feel like went too cheap and you wish you went the extra dollar for? Well, I mean, we've, you know, we've highlighted that uh, um, Machado went for quite cheap. And, you know, there's things that are going to get missed as the draft happens just because it's so it's so quick. Um, I was trying to uh, make a pizza during the draft, and so I had to... Hold on, can, we, can we correct? You were trying to heat up a pizza? Well, I, I mean, I wasn't 
you know, I, I wasn't. You were tossing you know, cutting, the dough. I wasn't cutting pepperoni and then putting <laughs> sauce on it or anything. It was a, it was a pre-made pizza, but I still had to preheat the oven. I had to get the pizza loaded in. I had to take it out. I had to cut it. I had to, you know, it was a bunch of stuff that was happening, and I was afraid I was going to miss a lot of draft stuff. And th- there were, there were two or three players where I, because the pizza was done, I had to uh, miss out on bidding for those players just because there's so much going on and I, I couldn't have the luxury like some of our other drafters did of having things brought to them during the draft so they didn't have to move. I had to do everything for myself. So um, pretty pretty tough and difficult and there's going to be value in there. You know, there's going to be stuff that people slip by because, you know, you could see the pattern um, every time where someone would nominate someone. The first 10 seconds would tick by as everybody would go look them up on their sheet or whatever they were using to kind of keep track of stuff, and there would be virtually no bids. And then we'd get into those final 10 seconds, and the people would kind of see where they wanted to be and start bidding. Um, so you had to you had to keep up on it. And, and props for anybody who managed to track the spending and amounts for everybody during the draft, because I had the ability to do that, but within... The first couple of picks, I knew it was going to be impossible for me to do, so I immediately gave up on it um, because it was it wasn't going to work. So my sheet didn't even I wasn't even basically even eliminating players, so I couldn't even really see what was going on. So I was just kind of following along as they came up, searching and finding them and seeing what what kind of price there was for them and if I liked them or not. Yeah, uh, I I did so. I ended up building myself a macro before the draft to help myself track how much every player was going for and taking them off my sheet. But, uh, yeah, no, it was very difficult to keep track of everything that was going on. Uh, I think that having multiple computers and multiple screens would have been a big benefit here. Um, I don't know what we would do if we were all in person either. I think it'd be kind of crazy with all the noises coming out of the computers. So, Well, yeah, I mean, that that is, I'm sure that guy speaks at different paces for all of us. And so the echo of going once, going twice, uh, sold, uh, you bought a woman in the front row, uh, that that would have been uh, crazy. So it would have definitely all had to uh, mute. I would also say if you do want someone to bring you food as you do things, it's uh, if you find someone to live with or if you hire yourself a, a nice maid or uh, get yourself a dog and attach some food to it and let it walk around the house, uh, those are ways that you can get food brought to you. Or we can uh, do the Jeff way and have a baby. You can have a baby. Well, I don't know. Does the baby bring food? <laughs> if, if you put it on its back. <laughs> so I, I know you brought up that you wanted to talk a little bit about roster creation and usage of the bench slots during this podcast. So we're about 50 minutes in, so I think it's time to get to a little bit of strategy, and then I want to conclude with talking a little bit about some of the new baseball rules that we've seen one weekend so far this year. Yeah, so I think... With the decreased bench size this year um, and the addition of the middle infield, corner infield, and outfield spots, one of the things that I think is interesting is assuming that pretty much everybody's got the same route that you got the maximum number of starting pitchers and you have another relief pitcher, you pretty much have four spots to deal with. I don't know if you surveyed every team and kind of seen if everybody's in that same spot or if someone's utilizing more of their bench spots for hitters. But I think assuming that you've got four, how do you spend those four spots and split them up in the most effective way? And what's your strategy for that? Yeah, uh, it's definitely tougher this year, and I found it to be somewhat 
restrictive. Um, in previous years, it, it's tough because the the line between four and five seems to be uh, not very not very noticeable, but I've found it to be restrictive in terms of how I'm managing my team, whereas uh, this year I'm not bothering to own another catcher. Now I get it that you have two catchers, but there are two that you feel like are worth rostering. With everything that's out there on waivers, I don't feel like two catchers are worth rostering at this point. Um, when I need to fill a middle infield, a corner infield, an additional outfield slot to start the year. So in terms of strategy... It's tough. I feel like my outfield is fairly set in stone. I, I know that one thing that you mentioned is that you tried not to spend on outfield. I wouldn't say that I was trying to spend on outfield, but it seems like that's where I was getting a lot of my value. So uh, instead of having a sixth outfielder, I only have five outfielders. So four and then one backup. And then everywhere else, I'm trying to get somewhat multiple position eligible players, trying to find people who can cover corner infield and middle infield. Uh, where possible. That's also something that enticed me about Tommy Lastella is that he's second base and third base. And so he's able to do corner infield and middle infield. Um, but I think that it's really just trying to cover all your bases. And I don't even know if this is the same strategy that I would deploy in a normal 162-game season. Yeah, I think you, know, you spoke to a lot of the points and things that, that I've considered. Um, by the way, Ryan McMahon is also a second and third baseman, so he can do both spots, which is why I was willing to give up Tommy Lastella in that you do have that there's someone who can slide between that middle and quarter infield. And, and really nothing nothing bugs me. Well, the number one thing that bugs me is when I forget to put a player in. That that bugs me to no end that I left a pitcher on my bench because I forgot to put him in. So that, that bugs me. The second thing that bugs me, not nearly as much as that, is having open roster spots with people on my bench who are not able to produce for me. That annoys me very much because I'm losing potential. There's open spots there that I can't fill that I need to put players in this in the position to win. And so to me, I know the catcher stuff bugs me. And so I, I know when I look at the four spots, I am going to have two catchers because I'm going to pay attention and make sure that someone is starting almost every day. Um, so I have to have two catchers to have that spot. I want to have someone in the catcher spot. I think staring at it empty would bug me. So I know I'm going to have two catchers. So there's already one of my four spots gone. I also think you have to have another outfielder. With four outfield spots and the way the schedules work, it's going to make sense that a lot of days there's going to be one of your four you know, starting outfielders who are off. And so you need to have a fifth person to be able to rotate in for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so I think for sure, for me, when I looked at my four spots, one for catcher, one for outfielder was a lock. Um, drafting Nelson Cruz for me this year also put additional restrictions on me. So that's one of the issues with Nelson Cruz, of course, is that he clogs up your utility spot. And so even when I have other opportunities for some of these guys to start, if Cruz is playing, he's got to be in that utility spot. <clears throat> and so I don't have the ability to put him anywhere else. So um, that's additionally something that's restrictive for me. And so with my other two spots, I have to do some sort of infield combination backup. Um, so I've tried to s spread things around and tried to make sure that I, I cover the different 
um, positions and who could potentially be out. Um, and in particular, I picked up another first baseman because maybe I'm not completely sold on on Miggy being the you know successful one this year. I picked up Eric Thames on on Washington, who I think's in a um, a good spot in the lineup with Ryan Zimmerman opting out this year, and so he's got the potential to really step up there and actually start every game. So far, he's been pretty unsuccessful in the role, but I think he's got a, a good potential to to really do well in that lineup. Haven't seen it yet, um, so I, I've just been trying to cover all my bases. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I'm looking at your team, and you have two players who have multi-position eligibility. VR, who is at second and short, and maybe get outfield eventually. Um, and Ryan McMahon, who's second and third. Now, I know McMahon, being a Rockies fan, he has not uh, done too hot this season, batting 077. So it's just tough, right, when we have so many slots to fill, and then players who either have off days, or the team is off, or, God forbid, COVID, I mean... Phillies and Marlins have been a complete wipeout this and Yankees and Orioles this whole week so far. Uh, and the Marlins will continue to be so and the Phillies will continue to be so for the next couple of days. So it's just tough when you don't have the flexibility and yes you can have uh, multiple catchers and that's great but now you're able to f- fill in a catcher who averages two points per game where maybe you should instead be filling in an infielder who can get you two, two and a half points a game. I think we're going to see more of that going forward, right? So right now, as far as we know, and they, you know, they haven't said that they're not doing this. The plan is to try to somehow make up those Marlins games. And so you've got now players that you expect to be more valuable in the tail end of the year because they're going to be playing virtually every day. Um, They're not playing for a week, of course, so you're going to be struggling this week, but in general, now you've got to value those players higher going forward as they presumably attempt to fill the season back up and make sure everybody plays 60 games. I don't know if it's going to be possible or not, um, but they've got more value going forward even though it's, it's painful for right now. And you hope it pays off in time like the playoffs where they're able to really play and stay in every day. Yeah, I'm skeptical that it's going to be possible, but uh, we will see what MLB decides to do. Uh, you did vote 6 out of 10 that you think that there will be a conclusion to this season. You're fairly optimistic. I did, and there was there was an awful lot of pessimism in the in the Slack yesterday, and um, maybe measured at the at the time and correct, but, you know, I, I I don't think it was necessarily the right decision, and Harbaugh actually, actually asked me this, I don't think it was the right decision to necessarily start this whole thing, period. I'm, I'm happy baseball's here, but I don't think it was necessarily the, the smartest move. And because we've gotten this train going, I think it's going to be extremely difficult to stop. There's a ton of money involved. They have expanded the playoffs, 16 teams, in an attempt solely to grab that money back. It is a play to the networks to get the money back into the hands of Major League Baseball. Um... And so if they don't reach that point and they don't reach that crescendo, they're going to have an issue with this year. And so they, and they includes absolutely Manfred, who's gotten completely slammed over the last couple of days, um, are going to try to keep this train going as much as possible. And so this is, this is only a bump in the road. It's going to take something like this happening for, let's say, four or five teams a 
complete disaster wipeout in order to stop what I think is going forward, how to continue with the league and how to ultimately be successful. Um, and then the other option that I see in terms of stoppage is an unfortunate catastrophe, and that could be in any sport where any athlete unfortunately passes away because of this. I think if that happens, similar to how Rudy Gobert was sort of the canary in the coal mine to pause the seasons, if somebody was to pass away from this, I think that would cause a complete reevaluation from all the leagues. I mean, Eduardo Rodriguez is already having car complications. Is that not enough for everybody? He'll be perfectly fine. He's working on it, and uh, he has an enlarged heart, so he's working on it. It's. It, it, I just don't see a way. Right, the Marlins played Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They played three games. Now they're taking seven days off. Where are we fitting these games in? It's. It's. Day, it was day four. Day four, and a team already has to suspend seven of their games. It, how, how are we fitting these games in? What happens if this occurs during the playoffs? If a team just gets COVID, a COVID epidemic during the playoffs, I. <laughs> I don't see a way that we are going to make it through a full season and have all teams play full 60 games, but I also don't see a way that they can say, all right, the Marlins can only play 40 games and that's going to be fine and we'll just take their win percentage. There is there is precedent for that as well. That has happened in the in the past where teams have played an even amount of games. Okay, but you're talking about percentage. 161 instead of 162. We're no, not- even even before that. So in the in the late 60s, there was a there was a period where. They went by win percentage, and there was drastically different amounts of game played. I'm not. I'm not saying it was two thirds of the season. Uh, there was also segregation in the late '60s. It doesn't mean that we should do what they did back then. Well, that's that's. I I think given the expanded playoffs this year, that's an acceptable way to go about it. Now, if you're someone like the Marlins, I believe they're two and one. Like, do you hope you don't play for the rest of the season and you get into the playoffs at this point? Like, well, I let, don't know. Let's just pick names out of a hat. Then why are we even playing? If this is what we're going to do, why are we even bothering to play to come up with a cockamamie way to decide the playoff teams to probably end up somewhere in October where we now have, I don't know, let's call it the uh, Texas Rangers or the World Series champions coming in from the eighth seed in the AL? Um, I said it before. The answer is money. I mean, that that's the reason why. is It's it's all about really the money and, make, and making sure that um, they can continue to be profitable through this end. Um, it's not going to be ideal. I mean, I'm glad to have baseball back. I was, you know, I was sucked up and engrossed in it pretty much the entire weekend um, as something to something to do. And people can use this, you know, distraction. And so I think it's a, you know, fun. It's a fun activity and a fun thing to do. But obviously, don't want people to get hurt from it. Um, and I think you just have to piece it together and, and do the best you can and continue to move forward. But I, I, I believe they're going to be very reluctant to stop. It's going to take a, a big catastrophe in order to stop what they've already started. You've already seen, though, that these issues aren't isolated. The The Marlins are the only team that tested positive. They had 15 positive tests during the last round. Yet their positive tests have now stopped play for four different teams. Here's the, here's the one positive I'll say so far, at least as of right now, is that no Phillies have become impacted. And so there is a positive where they're being super cautious right now as far as, okay, they played together in a three-game series, let's quarantine the Phillies. But going forward, that might not be the practice. 
they've shown that this time an opponent did not get infected, which makes sense given the amount of interaction that would be between the two teams besides people standing on base and the catcher and the batter standing together. Um, But there's very limited interaction between the teams themselves. And so if this can be used as a base point to say if one team gets impacted, their opponent does not necessarily have to be quarantined, um, that could be something moving forward that they can leverage and use because they're using an abundance of caution at this point. It's tough. I mean, you're touching the same balls and you're you're sharing the same airspace, as you said, when you're on base. Uh, I don't know if this will necessarily change the way that MLB responds to these for opposing teams going forward. Also, with the delay in testing, uh, what if these tests had come back one day later, right? What if the, the Marlins had tested positive after playing the Phillies and they already moved to their next series against the Marlins? Now we're quarantining, what, eight teams? Because now there were four teams in total. And now all of them have moved to their difference. It's just, it becomes uh, a, a complete waterfall effect. Uh, and we we were at day four. Day four out of 66, and we already have an issue. I, I don't see a way that we make it through this to the other side. I'm skeptical. But to think that this wouldn't happen is silly. I mean, the MLB came up with a very extensive... You know, I think it was like a 120-page plan. That said nothing about what to do when your team has tested positive. Well, then shame on them. Yes, shame on them. Shame on them for even having a return to play that was not in a safe and efficient manner. And you see the bubble in the NBA. You see the bubble in the NHL. And those have both been, at least to this point, proven to work. We'll see when the games actually get started. But MLB... MLB decided that it was a good idea to let these players fly around the country, live in their own homes, not have to really quarantine themselves, go to practice, do everything that they would normally do in their day-to-day lives, and think that there would be no repercussions to come from it. Yes, everybody's currently exalting the bubble. Oh, the bubble's this great creation that has saved all these players in this spot. We have no idea yet. Like you said, they haven't started really. They've done some preseason stuff and some preliminary stuff, but we have no idea how successful the bubble is going to be. So this thought that, oh, the bubble's this great thing that's actually saving everybody is way too premature for me. But you're saying that the bubble can be worse than no bubble? No, I, I'm, I'm saying Just, that what's we the have downside? not proven that the bubble is effective yet. What's and the so downside? It, it's, it can't be less effective. I mean, sure it can be. You have people in one location that need to play each other. And so it could run rampant through everybody. They're not Because you've got everybody in one location. But they're not supposed to be hanging out with each other. That's that's part of the point here is that you're not supposed to be hanging out. You're supposed to be only seeing your team when you practice and not seeing anybody else. Well, we see how well baseball is already following their own rules as there's plenty of high fives and spitting and uh, you know all the other stuff that they're not supposed to be doing either. And so we see how well they're following their rules. Let's see how well the MLB and NHL, uh, the uh, um, NBA and NHL do when they come back, how well they're following their rules. So are you putting the blame on the players for contracting the disease and spreading it amongst themselves? No, I, I, I'm the, the fault lies with MLB for putting them in this position where that can happen. 
um, but they're also not following the protocols that have been set up. As far as I know, and people are still throwing the ball around, you know, there's a strikeout, the catcher goes and throws the ball down to third base. As far as I know, it's not supposed to be happening either. There's supposed to be no throwing the ball around for, for situations like this. So um, they're not also following the protocols that have been established by MLB either, but MLB has put them in this situation because of lack of oversight or whatever to, to fail. So who's supposed to stop that? Who's supposed to stop throwing the ball around, and what's the repercussion for someone who does? Is it a fine? Is it how, how do you prevent this? Who does the onus fall upon? I think that that is a... So it's, it's MLB in particular for this case because that's their employer. But that's a question in general life. Who's supposed to police the mass, right? I think we see that going on right now where, you know, actual police don't want to get involved with conversations like this. And you're relying on, you know, store owners and you're relying on restaurant staff to have to police this ask from everybody to maintain this new social standard. And it's a general societal question as to who's supposed to, we, we, as a group, we have come up with these standards that we need to follow that we think is supposed to keep us all safer, but some people don't believe they're the right things to do, and those people are people in the United States, and we need to figure out how to work with them in order to keep us all safe. MLB has a uh, long tradition of not enforcing their own rules. I mean, do you remember the whole batter step out rule a couple of years ago which as far as i know has never been repealed but is not being enforced anymore i haven't heard anything this year about any pitcher time clocks i don't know if they've been turned off but there's been absolutely zero discussion about that um so i just don't know mlb it comes to it often has no backbone in terms of enforcing their own rules i also haven't seen her this year anything about mound visits i, I also have not seen the counter all right, here we go. MLB Studio Network update right now. There's there's a huddle on the field between the Astros and the Dodgers. Everyone is on the field right now. Umpires are in the middle. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is live right now. All these players are on the field in close contact with each other. Right. Shouldn't happen. Can't happen. Not, not part of... And yeah, I think MLB needs to be the one that steps in and issues, like you said, whether it's fines or whether, you know, hey... Mookie Betts, stop chewing gum, you know, whatever whatever it is. You no, know. Don't pick on Mookie like that. Well, um, you know, they need to be, they came up with these rules to keep everybody safe. Everybody should be following them. There's blatant disregard right now. And so that needs to be brought back into shape. So we'll see what baseball ends up doing. You, you seem to be a little more optimistic than I do that there, there's going to be nothing that stops this freight train from rolling down the track, but... Uh, we'll finish up with touching on some of the other rules that baseball put in place this year. Two in particular, we've gotten to see the extra inning rule a little bit, where in the 10th inning, a runner starts at second base. Uh, you have any feelings, positive or negative, for this rule? So I believe this is true, and you can you can double-check me on it if you know of anything. There were definitely a handful of extra inning games since we've started. Yes. I want to say somewhere in the 5-6 to six range at least. Yeah, I think it was around four or five, yeah. As far as I know, none of them have gone past the 10th inning. Uh, Pirates versus Brewers yesterday did. Okay, what's that go to? I believe 11. Okay, so as far as this rule brings games to an end, I think so far we've seen that to be successful. Um, Where it brings conclusions to games that work. Is it hokey? Sure, it's absolutely hokey to stick someone on second base. Um, my biggest concern, 
around it from the beginning was much more the away team doesn't score. They're able to be held. And then the home team basically sacrifices over to third, hits a sack fly. They win the game really without getting any sort of hit or momentum going forward. And they can sort of, you know, have a, have a layup, which I think we see in some other sports like college football. When you look at their overtime rules, Oh, this team kicked the field goal. So I can be more conservative here and, you know, sort of not, not have to really push and stretch it. So, that was much more my concern, was that the away team would be disadvantaged going in because if they were unable to score, the home team could just sort of punt it in and be able to um, take the win. So I am I would have been actually much more of a fan. I, I agree with getting the games over with this year, especially this year. Um, I would have been much more of a fan of actually just ending it in a tie. We're going to play nine innings. If it gets to the end and, and we're done, it's a tie, and we'll just go – Go on from there, no problem, um, rather than have this this person at second. Um, but what it has done is bring conclusions to games, and so on that side, I'm saying it's successful. Yeah, it's it's tricky, and I think a lot of the games that we've seen in extra innings so far actually ended up being complete blowouts, like the one that the Mets lost to the Braves on, I believe that was Saturday night, where they ended up losing by about four or five runs. That had nothing to do with the extra innings. That had to do everything to do with the Mets' bullpen being uh, terrible. So... Uh, it's yes it looks like it's bringing an end to games quicker i because the rule has this sort of carnival feel to it i would like to see if it's implemented long term there be some sort of benefit given to teams that are able to push games to extra innings somewhat like in hockey where in overtime you get one point and the winner gets two points but you still get one point if you can push it to extra innings uh because it does feel somewhat random and luck-based once you get into extra innings um, in terms of who wins. Yeah. I mean, I, I would... I, I don't think I would be supportive of this going forward in the 10th. But because it has been successful, like used in other sports where, you know, it's it's a way to, you know, force something and bring a conclusion to it, I could... I, could, I would honestly be a fan of this is what happens in the 12th inning. So you have two innings to figure stuff out amongst yourselves. If you can't do it in two or three innings, where then either the 12th or 13th, we're putting a runner on second. Something like that where you're not going to go to it as your first mode, but it's a way to bring in a game to an end that we don't think we're going to have to go 18 innings because that's just a disaster for everybody involved. Yep, I would be in favor of that as well. Um, and then the second rule that we've really seen uh, have a large-scale impact is the reliever rule, where relievers have to face a minimum of three batters or the end of the inning, whichever comes first. What are your feelings on yeah, that one? And it's, a, it's, a, it's a rule I was a, um, I was a fan of. Um, I think that is something that uh, should happen. There's far too much switching and waiting, and so I think cutting down on all of that, and in particular... Yeah, you can do it. You can do it at the end of an inning. I think works works fine. I think it's going to challenge some of these guys who are you know lefty specialists to have to expand beyond their range a little bit. But I have no issue with that at all. And so I'm I'm something I'm in full supportive. And you know I, I think my, my my biggest worry is more around someone's truly melting down and you can't get them out. So. 
is that going to happen in three batters? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But in a one-run game where someone pitches to two batters and I really don't want them to pitch to a third, but they kind of have to because that's where we are right now and I would be switching them out, that's the situation that I feel like is a big disadvantage. But other than that, I have no issue with it at all. And I do think that there is an injury clause in there as well where if a pitcher is hurt, you're able to take them out. Um, I I have some skepticism in terms of people who will eventually attempt to abuse that clause within the rule, uh, much like loopholes are found in other sports or certain soccer players fake injuries in order to bleed the clock or slow things down. Uh, I do worry about pitchers eventually faking injuries if they are a lefty and now have to face a righty and they pretend like their arm is now hurting them. So that is something that I would be concerned about down the line, and there hopefully will be strong repercussions if you're able to eventually prove that that's not the case. But I'm uh, wholeheartedly with you where I really enjoy this rule, and I, I was a fan of it beforehand as well. Uh, but seeing it in play, I'm an even bigger fan of it. And I do think that as a batter, you're not able to get to choose if you face a lefty or righty. And there are certainly certain left-handed batters who aren't good against left-handed pitchers. Um, I think that pitching should be, at least to a certain point, the same way, where if you're a left-handed pitcher, you have to be able to get right-handed batters out. I mean, there yes, platoons exist, but I think to a certain extent, you need to be able to not be fully a specialist within the game of baseball. Uh, I also think that this puts more managerial decisions into the hands of the manager. I think that over the years, the manager has really turned from someone who manages the game to someone who is has more of an emotional and clubhouse manager effect on the game. I mean, everyone has analytics these days. Everyone has access to the same information where the managerial landscape in terms of who's actually better at in-game decisions, unless you're someone like Joe Madden who sometimes does things completely out of left field, is fairly flat. I think that most managers are looking at the same things and are making the same decisions based off the same information. A lot. This puts a lot of um, more input back into the hands of the manager. The one thing that I would like to see, though, and I don't believe that this is currently implemented, and I'd like to see it as part of the rule, is that if the offense team, if the team that is batting, decides to use a pinch hitter at any point, the pitcher is now free from the three-batter minimum rule. I don't think I ever remember hearing that as part of the conversation, but I think that if you do have, let's say, some right-handed specialist on your bench who hit lefties really well, and you end up stacking your lineup with lefties, and then they bring in a lefty to pitch, you can't just slot those three righties in automatically right away, and that left-handed pitcher has to face those three righties. So I would like to see something like that implemented, and I really haven't seen that come into play at all, um, but that's just something as I'm watching the game of something I'm thinking about. Yeah, I think that I would be in favor of that change if it's not already in there. I, I don't think it is. I haven't heard about it. Um, and I agree with the whole managerial part, too. You know, there's there's much more now coming from the front office and the way that they dictate, you know, even down to the lineups. And, um, you know, it was one of the reasons why we heard that Joe Girardi wasn't a coach of and manager of interest in many teams because he was too directive on a lot of those things. And they want to have so much control with the analytics department and the offices. And so we need to 
you know, I think giving more power in the hands of the, the managers and having them able to actually do some game stuff. And, you know, let's be real, a manager maybe wins you three to four games on a regular 162-game season. It's not a lot um, I think as it's far as real-time decisions that. go. What's that? I think it's probably even less than that. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's not there's not that many you know, super crazy real-time decisions, but... Uh, yeah, I, I agree with what you what you've said. So there are two other rules that actually got changed here that I wanted to get your opinion on. Unless you wanted to keep talking about this one. No, I've uh, said my piece on. I know actually a lot of people in the league are not in favor of this rule. So I would like to continue the conversation on the next podcast as well, if we do have any dissenters in the group. But I think that we're fairly well talked about on this one. Yeah. So the other two, one is a. Uh, small one actually that I think it'll be pretty easy to get your thoughts on then one's a much bigger one um, they've actually shortened the challenge window this year so given the time that coaches had to make that call to challenge and we've seen you know the immediate hold and get on the phone with someone they've knocked the window down in terms of challenges so I wanted to get your your thoughts on that yeah I love it uh, I think that they should knock it down even more I think they should enforce that time limit even more you shouldn't be able to review a replay yourself before you ask the umpires to review a replay. That's absolutely ludicrous. It should be based off the manager's perception and how much he believes in the given player that is advocating for the challenge. And it should be immediate. It should not be any sort of hold, in my opinion. The manager needs to appear within seconds, two or three seconds, in my opinion, and and implement the challenge. Yeah, I... I absolutely agree that it should be done live and I don't know who came up with this whole call the replay booth thing but I think it's absolutely ridiculous that that's the way that you can handle it and you can still challenge after taking a look at it. Well again this goes back to the same thing of I think there probably was something in the rule book that had a given statute of limitations in terms of time but MLB just refuses to enforce things. They don't enforce their own rules and that's they have no backbone. Yeah. The second one, which I think is going to be probably a little more controversial, depending on where your thoughts are, is we're now into a spot where we have universal DH. And so where where do you think the National League, being a Rockies fan, National League fan going forward, where do you think that MLB is going to end up coming forward on, on that change and where do you think they're going to be in the years to come? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic and one that I've spent some time thinking about. Um, I think that this has to be it. I don't think that there should be any coming back from the conversation from the National League after this year of implementing the Universal DH. Um, historically, I haven't been a fan of it. I've been more of a fan of the pure nature of the game and allowing pitchers to hit. Um, but the more that I've thought about it going forward, I don't think it's the smartest thing to do. I don't think it's the safest thing to do for the pitcher's perspective it's typically going to be an easy out. Um, I would like to see some way to get, right, like to be able to utilize Mass and Bumgarner's ability with the bat, which I think is amazing. I'd like it to somehow come into play, but I, I can't really think off the top of my head of a creative way. Uh, one thing that I've always thought of was that being in the National League, you have to, there's more managerial decisions because you're pinch hitting more frequently. You have to know who you're making more decisions of who to put up at the plate in a given situation. 
Um, and whether you're using, if you're the Dodgers like Chris Taylor or Kike Hernandez or whoever it may be that you have on your bench, you have to have the pulse of your team and put the right person up at the plate in a given situation to succeed where that doesn't really exist in the American League. Um, but I've, I've also thought about the other way, whereas in terms of pitchers on the mound and knowing when to put them in and take them out, as an American League manager, if someone who has the universal, who has the DH, you have to be much more in tune with your pitcher. It's not as easy as, oh, well, they have to come out of the game because they're up to bat next. You could really throw your pitcher out there again at the end of the inning if you wanted to because they're not going to come up and hit. So I think that it, it's not as simple as one league needs to be more strategic than the other or one the manager needs to be smarter in one situation. But I, I think that at this point, now that we've seen the universal DH, I don't think that we should really be going back. So I, I don't think that going into next year they're going to make this change permanent. I think they're going to need a year to reset, hopefully recover from all the, you know, what was a COVID year or a different year or a strange year, and then see where they are and reassess going forward. Um, but I, I absolutely believe that now I'm a, AL fan, a Yankees fan, a universal DH is the future for a variety of reasons. Um, and I could point to, and I, I won't, to Chiming Wong getting hurt and never being the same again, um, which is a you know a one-time story of someone who was forced to do something that they're not good at and, and ended up hurting my team in particular. But I, I just think as a way to keep aging players around star names around that the sport that could use star power i think that that's a way to keep them involved with more teams as you find dh spots for them and then being able to be successful going forward um i think that like you said the the last spot the pitcher spot is in the major vast majority of times a wasteland um where they're not going to be successful and it's it's not challenging to turn the lineup over and so if you've got someone in there, you have actually more flexibility to be able to set the lineup how you how you want um, and set it up how how you think you can be successful as a whole as a whole team. I don't think that NL managers have it particularly more difficult than AL managers. Um, there's there's a little more strategy in thinking about it, but um, I, I I don't think it really plays a lot into it in terms of we're taking away a huge portion of the game and I would even be up for what I've, I've heard of a, of a compromise even where if your starting pitcher is in that pitcher hits and then the minute you take that pitcher out they are replaced with a DH for the remainder of the game um, which I would I would see as a decent compromise going forward and I think could could work as sort of a stopgap if that was something the NL was interested in because I think it's sort of a best of both world scenario um, for that case yeah I, I'm also never in favor of the playoffs and the World Series not resembling what the 162 game season looks like um, so having this whole moving from AL to NL and two different rules within the two different leagues and then Right, if the Twins make the playoffs and make the World Series, how does Nelson Cruz fit into 
do you throw them in the outfield and then you're an NL team or you, do you have someone on your team who's supposed to be a DH when you're in the AL? I, I am in favor of keeping the rule universal, whatever it is. Um, and that also brings me to my next point as well as something we didn't speak about, but it would have had impact of this year of the expanded rosters where they were taking away, uh, they were adding a roster spot during the season, but then taking away the large-scale expansion of the rosters come September. So those September call-ups, which I'm actually in favor of that change because I, I think that your roster through the end of the year when a lot of the playoff races are coming down to the wire, you shouldn't have 800 arms in your bullpen that you can now throw. Um, and that's why I'm also, I, I don't enjoy as much the playoffs where you no longer need a fourth and fifth starter. You're throwing out the same three starters. So it's really just whoever has the best top of their rotation. And it's not as much about depth. Um, so those are a couple of things to throw out there as well. I'm not sure if you have any opinions. Yeah. I mean, the expanded rosters are absolutely ridiculous. There's just way too many people that get involved near the end. And I, I've never, I've never liked that at all. Um, so I'm, I'm fine with whatever compromise they had to make in order to, trim that down by quite a bit because I, I think it's ridiculous. And one extra player, I don't think, uh, I don't think burns you. And in particular, you know, even if, if the NL does keep doing what they're doing, having, there's times where you don't have that pinch hitter and you're having to make weird adjustments and have pitchers actually go hit like starters go hit because you don't have that pinch hitter in a spot that you really need them. And so having an additional, person there could be something good assuming the nl is going to keep with the um with the the pitcher hitting so i think having i think whatever they had to do to get rid of the crazy amount of september call-ups is perfectly fine all right i think that covers all the rule changes we are i believe about an hour and uh hour and a half into the podcast so i know you you've said before how you wonder how people can talk for an hour and a half but there we go uh is there anything else that you want to cover no i mean I, i'm like I said, I do think the season is going to continue. I think it's uh, I think it's exciting for us going forward. I think that the you know we've been having conversations with with people as we've started to head into football season and start to think about because obviously with much more people getting involved from a fantasy standpoint, um, people are wondering how are we going to how is that going to be handled? How can you handle and how can you handle and treat? At Fairly, and so I think we've done a good job in setting up the league here and coming up with the because I've touted what we've done in terms of payout. Where if you're eligible for the playoffs, you if you're still eligible for the playoffs, you get a, a share of the money if it was to collapse. And I think that's a fair compromise in order to be successful going forward. And so I like what we have. Um, I, I like Fantrax, I think Fantrax works fine for our needs and the customization options, especially the uh, caught stealing attempts from the catchers. I, I like that uh, option as something that we've uh, that we've thrown in. Um, so I think Fantrax works for us, even though there's still a lot of naysayers out there and people that want to go to ESPN. But ESPN um, is very much bloated as someone who dealt with them quite a bit in the football season. The, the interface has become completely bloated and it really does not work as well. So I think we should all be happy that we found Fantrax. So. That's some last-minute thoughts, and uh, hopefully next time we'll get a couple more people on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, glad you're enjoying the league, and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. And uh, if I am able to grab the crown this year, 
I wonder if it's the only time in history where someone has had all three championships from the league at the same time. I'm not sure whether we have history on that. You, you are the historian. First of all, there is no crown this year. So this this the league this year is a fluke. You will get the money if you paid, but there is no crown. Of course, there's a crown. There's no oh, crown. Are you, are you discrediting the World Series, the, the actual World Series champion? Are you discrediting them this year, no matter what? We'll see what happens, but there's an asterisk. There's an asterisk. There has to be. But everybody goes through and they don't remember the strike year and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that one really didn't count. That's That doesn't happen. People are going to forget. 15 years from now, people are going to forget and just look and say, the Yankees won another World Series that year. They're not going to remember. Our league this year is so different from every other year that we've had, even going down to the draft where we had an auction draft, that it's not a typical NYFBL crown if you win. Might not be typical, but I I, I would uh, I, I'm gonna treat that as legitimate and I very much would like to be a triple champion, so I'm looking forward to that. What's the third? As far as I know, since the last time we did the basketball league I believe oh, I won the last one, the, and I am still the champion going forward. The New York Fantasy Basketball League? That, that might not have been the name of it, but whatever it was called. We had From, a basketball like, 2010? League. Sure, whatever it was. I believe yeah. I won the last uh, the last crown, and uh, I still have that going forward because no one has challenged me yet in it. So, If you can prove that you won the last crown, then I'll give you the basketball championship. Okay, I'll work on it. Uh... But in terms of what this year looks like, in terms of baseball, uh, it's 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 not a uh, typical championship that someone will be earning. Okay, let's let's hope we get there. And there are people who didn't even pay, so if they win, they're not getting a, a share of the money, and they're not getting a championship either. So they're not well, getting they, much. Well, they, get, they get a championship even if they didn't pay. That wasn't part of the rules. Well, no one's getting a championship this year. It's not a real championship. There are whole teams that have been wiped out because of a pandemic. All right, we can save this for discussion on the next podcast. Uh, we'll talk about if a ch- if the winner this year is a true champion. Okay, that's fine. All right, well, thanks again for coming on, uh, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, everybody be safe out there. Bye-bye.